So we're going to be reading today from, we're going to be continuing the series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we pick up in Matthew 5, 43 to 48, um, and you can find that on uh, page 959, I believe, in the Pew Bibles. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Our heavenly Father, we pray for um, your guidance this morning. We pray for your blessing over, um, over this word and over... Um, the messages that each of us will hear. May you guide our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, this is one of those passages in the Old Testament that I think prompt people to wonder if the Old Testament and New Testament contradict each other uh, because a lot of people, Christian or Jewish or not, will recognize the saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Um, that's very readily recognized in our society. And, and a lot of people understand that as very definitive of the Old Testament. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor and love your enemies, it's a little bit surprising. Many people will look at the Old Testament and they'll think here is a God who is wrathful and they'll look at the New Testament and say here is a God who can't make up his mind anymore, right? So this is one of those passages that I think people point to and it, it confuses them. In ancient Israel, that very passage, that eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, it's found in Exodus 21, 23 to 25, uh, became something of a definitive scripture for lawmaking. It was meant to. It was always meant to be a standard for how people dealt out justice. If something was taken from you, that thing can be taken back. If you gave up a tooth, a tooth should be given in return. It was meant so that things did not escalate and get out of hand. It was meant so that when you lost a tooth, you didn't take a head in return. And when you returned that head, Someone didn't take your life in return. Well, I guess if your head was given up, that would have... 
you can't just keep escalating your conflict. It is an eye for an eye, and then it's done. That was the intention. And yet, that's not how it turned out, as with all things in human interpretation. So when the law was left to us to interpret, it became, well, we can return evil for evil. And that is exactly what these passages preach against. So later on in scripture, as we keep going, sorry, I'm losing my place. I wonder, (laughs) I'm sorry, no, no, it's not that. I wonder if we can turn the lights off, if that's okay, I'm sorry. That's excellent. (laughs) Um, As scripture kept going and as society continued on, we later see, especially in places like Psalms, where people are striving to understand God's love as God understands it. And so people are striving to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. And we see this also um, in in like the Qumran scrolls and the rules of the community where it says they may love all that God has chosen and hate all that he has rejected. And that, that along with an eye for an eye become kind of standards of how to govern community. So we see the basis of scripture and we see the desire to follow what God is commanding and yet Interpreted as humans imperfectly interpret the law, it becomes warped into, I will love the people that I think God loves, and I will reject the people whom I think God rejects. And an eye for an eye becomes, I deserve repayment, and I deserve revenge for what you have done. So whereas God had meant this as we don't want conflict to escalate, we want it to just be over and done, uh, and we want to love what is righteous and hate evil, it now becomes about people. And then you get to things uh, like who is my neighbor? And I think all of us can recognize the who is my neighbor uh, idea. All of us are probably prompted to think of the story of the Good Samaritan. And that's another place where it seems like the New Testament kind of contradicts this law that was slowly building over hundreds and thousands of years. Who is my neighbor is not a strange question back in Jesus' time, Who is my neighbor is actually a very common question because here in the law you have God saying, love your neighbor. You even have God saying, love the stranger. But you also have things like Exodus 21, 23 to 25. Oh, sorry, that's the wrong one. I'm sorry. Um, You also have... uh, Examples such as Exodus 23, 4 to 5, that says, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, 
be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. So we do have passages where God specifically addresses the enemy in the Old Testament, and yet Old Testament law and law in ancient Israel began to morph in such a way that it excluded certain groups. There was no intermarrying. The Samaritans were the other and the evil. The Gentiles were pagans and godless, and those are the things that the Israelites thought it might be godly to hate. Not the godlessness itself, but the people who proclaimed it. So when they say, who is my neighbor, that's not just a question that they were using to try and get out of Jesus's judgment, uh, but rather a legitimate question, well, who really should I love? Who is my neighbor? Maybe my neighbor is someone all the way across the world who also loves God the way I love God. But my neighbor couldn't possibly be someone next to me who is godless and who proclaims hatred. And yet, here in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has already flipped things topsy-turvy and redefined the law in ways that no one was expecting, he also proclaims to love your enemy. Now, Israel was God's chosen nation, and for a long time, uh, many believed that God's love and favor was tied to the land and to a certain people group. But since God's plan has always been to bless all through the chosen few, love for all is an obvious conclusion. And this goes back, way, way back, even to Abraham, where God promised to bless the many nations through Abraham's family. And it continues on all the way to through the Great Commission and beyond, where Jesus says, go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Love is an obvious conclusion because loving our enemy is necessary, one, for our own discipleship. It helps us to understand God better, but it's also missional. This is a path to reconciliation between God and the people and between people and people. John 13 tells us that we'll the world will know we are disciples of Christ based on our love. And here in today's passage, we see that the love that he refers to goes far beyond the love that we have for those who already love us back. We're called to something greater because everybody can love those who already love them. As Jesus said, the tax collectors, the pagans, they already love their families and they love their friends. Anyone can do that. But when somebody curses you or when somebody is deliberately cruel to you or when somebody is just unlovable, 
Loving them is a very different kind of love. And we are called to that remarkable love which Christ first showed us. So Christ loved us into the kingdom of God. And he calls us to love others into the kingdom of God. And God does not have the same kind of boundaries or groupings for people which we seem to have. We divide based on nation or religion or interest or attitude. And so, yes, the Israelites wanted to know who the neighbor really was. And the whole time, God was saying to them, the whole world is your neighborhood. As God is saying to us, the whole world is our neighborhood. Even that difficult person at work or at well, school, I don't see many people in school here right now. <laughs> um, even those difficult people are our neighbors. And the Israelites thought, okay, people who are mean to me, well, maybe we are called to be neighbors to them, but surely those people who despise God, they can't be a true neighbor because they were still thinking in a nationalistic kind of exclusive way that God had chosen the nation of Israel to be God's people. And so those, those lawless, godless, pagan people couldn't be our neighbor because they are against the things of God. But then, as Christians were reminded by Paul in Romans, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were once enemies of God, but he loved us and extended grace to us, where we would have been if we were still enemies and we had not been loved into the kingdom is a place that I don't even want to imagine. So sure, there are evil things that God does despise, and we are called to turn away from evil, but we are not called to turn away from his people. We are called to extend his love to all, even when we find it hard to do, even when they mock us for our beliefs, and even when they've been hurtful to us. Even if we're tempted to think they're not the type of person who would ever come to know the Lord. And Jesus underlines this and, and, and emphasizes this when he says, The rain falls on those who are righteous every bit as much as it falls on those who are unrighteous. And the sun shines on those who are unrighteous every bit as much as it shines on those who are righteous. Jesus notes um, that this good and bad are given God's love indiscriminately. It's common grace. Everybody experiences God's love. God who controls the sun and the rain doesn't discriminate, and we shouldn't either. But what's more remarkable about this passage, at least what stood out to me the most about this passage, was that God calls us to be perfect. And I don't know about any of you, but I am not perfect. And I find that to be a really hard call. I find loving your enemies to be a really hard call. I find it 
I find that I'm a little bit lost in that, that someone can just say, by the way, love those who hate you and love those who persecute you, as if that is the easiest thing in the world to do. And just because Jesus said it, I'm going to be able to completely do that right now. But he follows that up with, be perfect. And then you just feel like you're in a whirlwind of, I can't do this. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't just call us to be perfect. He calls us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. As disciples, we are to strive to be reflections of God in all we do. So Matthew's use of the word perfect indicates a future tense. You will be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. It's, a, it's on one hand a command, but it's on the other hand a goal. It's a command in that as we strive to be more Christ-like, we can't ignore the fact that God himself is love, perfect love, and that perfect love that God has toward all of his creation, toward all of his creatures, toward all of humanity, and toward each and every individual person, is the kind of perfect love that we must show toward every individual person as well. Even our enemies and even those who persecute us. We must show them not just love, but perfect love. That is our command. So human imperfect love is easy, but godly perfect love is hard. But then the statement, you will be perfect, is also encouraging as the ultimate goal to stride toward. We aren't perfect or complete in love now, but ultimately we will be more and more practiced at it. God constantly loves us. And so we see this statement as a goal in which we can take courage in the fact that we have a great teacher. We know we can look to God for help as we journey on toward the state of this complete and perfect lovingness. In fact, coming in the midst of Jesus' sermon, this seems to be an invitation every bit as much as it's a command. The word that Jesus used for perfect, both in Hebrew and in Greek, translates into a reference to completeness. So it's more, in Hebrew, it's more of a completeness or perfection in animals used for sacrifice or in the complete commitment of a person to God. And in Greek, it also refers to completeness. So when Jesus says to be perfect as your heavenly father, it's also an invitation to be complete in your commitment to the father. And that's not so overwhelming, right? When somebody tells you to be perfect, it feels like the pressure is really on and you have to get it right. And to be fair, this is a serious command and there is some pressure I mean, you can't just disregard it, but think of it as completely committing to the God who loved you at your most imperfect. He's already perfect in love, 
So your complete commitment to him will help you in the goal of perfect love. We must have God's help in this, both in loving our enemies and in striving for perfect love. There's no other way to do it. It is hard to love as God loved on any good day when we're surrounded by our family who love us back and our friends who love us back. That's why there's conflict and arguing. It's hard to love perfectly even in the most loving of situations. But to go further and to love those who don't love us is pretty impossible without God's help. We need to learn from Jesus' examples before we can emanate those examples in this world. And we need God's grace for when we inevitably fail. We need heavenly discernment because sometimes choosing the most loving path is not as straightforward as we'd like it to be. We need God's help in this because sometimes loving those who don't love us is actually downright terrifying. We need to trust that he will bring us through it. So we need to be in this perfection, this complete commitment to God so that he can teach us how to also be perfect in love. And that's our starting point those things that seem so impossible, being perfect and loving our enemies, well, that is our starting point right there. In fact, Jesus said it in his sermon. Our starting point is prayer. We pray for our enemies, and there are reasons we do this. We pray for them because we love them, and we want to know how to love them better. We pray for them because we don't know how to do this and we're a little afraid maybe. We pray for them because remember this is about mission and we want them to know about God's kingdom. We begin with prayer for our enemies and our persecutors. In fact, that's the only step that Jesus really gave us. He said, love your enemies, be perfect, here's the step is prayer. You need to lean on God first for this. And through prayer, that's where the other steps come. Maybe the Holy Spirit will lay something on your heart, or maybe God is going to teach you how to love this person. Maybe, maybe through prayer, this person will come to Christ in some way. But the very first step is prayer. Maybe the prayer is for your own comfort. Because God calls us to love our enemies. God calls us to turn the other cheek. God calls us to walk the extra mile, but God does not call us to be abused. I think sometimes this passage can go one way or the other. And so we need to find those steps in loving our enemy and still allowing God to love us completely. And that is always a step with prayer. And sometimes we skip that step. Sometimes we think, well, this step is so easy, or I'm right in the moment right now. And so we skip past the step of prayer, finding it to be unnecessary, or 
maybe we think we'll pray later, or whatever the case may be, we tend to skip the prayer step. And yet it's the only thing Jesus really called us to do as an action in this, in this passage. It's that one that we can't skip past. God will tell us how to do this. Our commitment is to God first, and that means coming to him with everything. Coming to him with every moment in our lives. Coming to him with every grief and every question and every fear, even as it pertains to his own commands. And so that's our first step this week. We all have those who maybe we would, maybe we wouldn't label them enemies, but we all have those that is hard to love. So here's what we need to do. We need to commit to loving them the way God loved. And the only way we can do that is with our perfect, complete commitment to him. With Christ, this is possible. With Christ, we can have a complete relationship with God. So as we move into a time of offering today, I'm going to invite you to begin the journey of perfect love and of being perfect in your relationship with God by simply committing to pray for the salvation of that one person or that one group that you struggle with. Pray that God's glory would reign over all of it. A world is watching and it's drawn to a loving God, one who loves us without limits and one who loves all without limits. So our call is to go and extend his limitless love to the world and not to forget to be perfect. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we pray um, for those with whom we struggle in relationship. But first, God, we pray for ourselves. The call to be perfect is an overwhelming one. But God, you call us instead to commitment to you through your perfect love. And so, God, we pray that we would start there. We pray that you would remind us of our relationship with you and that you would help us to turn to you in struggle and in reliance, that you would show us how to love more perfectly. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.